Throughout this podcast, I will be interviewing people across different fields and learning about the difficult discussions that they have within their careers, along with the tools that they use to manage those conversations. The end goal is to deduct common themes and skills among different individuals that can be applied to the complex conversations one has on a daily basis. Equity is definitely at the forefront and um, respect for persons. So really thinking about people's autonomy and their ability to make their own decisions. My name is Annabelle Walter, and this is Difficult Discussions, a podcast dedicated to finding a method to navigating difficult conversations. My name is Tamara Schiff. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in medical ethics at NYU, and most of my research is in transplant ethics, and I'm trained as an internal medicine physician. And, and how did you become interested in medical ethics? Uh, when I decided to go to medical school, I knew I wanted it to be a part of my career. And I did uh, an extracurricular track in medical ethics in medical school. Uh, but then throughout my residency training, I came to the realization that I actually wanted it to be a central part of my career. And that's when I transitioned to uh, research rather than clinical medicine with a component of ethics. So what type of difficult discussions are you advising or or do you sort of have within your work? So sometimes it's just one-on-one discussions with other people in the same field as me. And it has to do with really thinking about what are the primary ethical issues at hand. And there, my perspective of my training and uh, my familiarity with the literature is useful in informing you know what I bring to the discussion but it's just as important to be mindful of the limits of my perspective and that I am not someone who has had the lived experience of both a transplant patient either a donor or a recipient or a caretaker of of one of the two and I don't have the lived experience of being a transplant clinician which comes with its own Uh, stresses and its own moral distress, which is a term that's been coined in the medical literature for the tension that uh, clinicians feel between what they are limited in what they can do or what they are instructed to do or what the system sets up for them to do and what they think is moral or ethical and that moral distress can be you know, uh, a heavy burden. So knowing that I don't have those perspectives uh, is also an important part in those discussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when you're going into these conversations and you know that perhaps you do not have the perspective of the individual, um, the perspective or the lived experience of the individual you're at, nav- you are advocating for, how do you sort of put yourself in their shoes and put your own experiences sort of in the backseat to make sure that you really are representing them? Well, I think an important part is advocating for those voices to be part of the conversation. So never thinking that we've gathered all the necessary information to come to a critical decision without those voices. And that means, you know, seeking a diversity of voices in every sense. So, you know, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic level, gender, 
many other categories I could list. And then also, again, diverse lived experiences. And it's knowing the limitations of your own perspective and then making sure the voices of the people who have those critical perspectives are included. And that sometimes makes these discussions or you know these deliberations a little more difficult, meaning you have to take the time to find those people and make sure that you're not, you know, that it's not just symbolic, meaning you get one voice and say, there, we did our, our due diligence, um, but really being mindful about what the critical nature of what diversity brings to the table and then seeking out those voices. Yeah. Um, and, and what values or frameworks if any, stay at the forefront of your mind when you're having these discussions? Sure. So, I mean, I think values that are usually at the forefront for me are primarily those that deal with um, equity and fairness. So that has to do with thinking about what is gained if a certain, you know, either if a certain path in in a discussion is advocated for so or how that would translate into a policy so thinking about what is gained and what is gained for certain populations and what is gained for certain systems and then at the same time what is lost um, for other populations or you know for public trust or down the line and then again not to sound like a broken record being mindful of realizing that there's stuff that we're not even considering of what is gained and lost because our perspectives are limited so Equity is definitely at the forefront and um, respect for persons. So really thinking about people's autonomy and their ability to make their own decision and how much, again, our inclinations for what is right for somebody else always needs to be curbed and we need to seek out, you know, their perspective about what is right for them. And that sounds a little, it's hard to take that and then make it applicable to the type of work I do, which is much more, you know, systems-based and policy-based. But the point is just being mindful that work not to work towards any sort of advocacy for a policy even that's even though that's many steps down the line that would blanketly purport to know what is good for a population so to sum it up i think i really think about equity and i really think about autonomy yeah trainee uh, participation in medical care um, and the policy there. So I wanted to ask you just your personal opinion. Um, what specific tools do you think that um, these medical professionals should be taught in order to have uh, conversations with patients in the most productive way possible? It's a really great question. I think for me, the reason I have such a strong interest in it is because again, I usually feel like I'm drawn to things that have a very like central tension. And in terms of medical trainees, there is this central tension between first and foremost, providing the best possible care to the patients who are involved in the training. Um, but then on the flip side is that, you know, uh, matriculating physicians do need adequate training and some, and, you know, we never want one to suffer at the expense of the other Primarily, we'd never would want the former patient care to suffer um, at the hands of uh, training, but there is a tension there. And so the types of uh, ethical issues that really, really draw my interest are, you know, 
obtaining informed consent for training participation in patient care. So how much a patient um, is entitled to know about who is providing their care and the fact that the person providing their care is a trainee. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get subpar care, but you know, they maybe haven't done that procedure as often or haven't had those types of delicate discussions as often. So those are the types of things that interest me. And then to get to your question of, of what needs to be taught, I think, you know, to bring back those two principles of equity and autonomy. So the first is that we really need to be extremely mindful of respecting people's autonomy. And so um, thinking continuously about this balance and what is the right way to make sure any patient with a trainee involved in their care really does have that choice and really does have that, you know, full information in proceeding with their care. And I don't want to make it sound like it's very black and white because it's, you know, it wouldn't be necessarily beneficial to a patient to have a discussion and be like, this is, you know, Tamar and she's only had three days of training and she has no idea what she's doing. And, and you know, and, and freak out the patient or maybe give them the type of information that they don't have the context. Like she's a third year resident and she's, you know, they don't necessarily know what to do with that. I think you should mention your level of training, but that should also be Again, it's a fine balance in contextualizing that in most training institutions, there's very adequate supervision, but it still should be the patient's choice about whether, you know, a certain part of the exam, even listening to your heart is done twice because one is by the physician who's providing their care and one is by the trainee. So just being very mindful of the choice that is deserved by the patient and then bringing it to equity, thinking about how medical training impacts different populations and how certain populations are disproportionately um, receiving care from trainees just by the nature of our medical system and you know public and private uh, medical care. So again, thinking about ways to continuously improve that system so that uh, certain populations aren't re-marginalized in, in different ways. I'm curious to know your viewpoint on how um, the autonomy of the patient and how that may compare to the autonomy of the doctor when it comes to who they get to treat and whether they have a say in um, who they want to treat based on perhaps beliefs or um, other motivations. It's a really good question again. And I think, um, again, I, I wanna stress in terms of the autonomy of the patient that it's an incredibly nuanced discussion in as it relates specifically to care by trainees, just because again, there's a balance in those two imperatives, providing patient care first and foremost, but then also the education. And, and, and again, I'll leave it at the fact that it's a very delicate balance, but as it relates to the autonomy of the clinician, I think my personal opinion is that there's definitely a need to set boundaries when it comes to the safety of the clinician. And this is where my perspective as a person, not a person of color um, and not a person from certain other, you know, demographics or populations that have certain experiences as a clinician that I don't have is very important. Um, so what I mean by safety is obviously physical safety, but uh, also, you know, in a, a, if a patient were to be abusive towards a clinician because of their race or because of their gender, that's something that's incredibly important. But 
incredibly important to make sure that the that the clinician or trainee is is safe in that situation or maybe not exposed to that situation. But um, outside of that, I am my personal opinion is really that um, you know there are very few things that can that should factor in or dictate um, who receives care, you know, as far as your question about the autonomy of a physician. And I think it is the role of the physician to provide care, even when, you know, the, the patient is of a different background, of a different belief or, or faith, of a different, um, you know, political leaning um, of if they have, you know, historical choices of what they've done, criminal record, whatever it is, um, I'd still think that the role of the physician is to, is to provide care within the boundary of, of, you know, making sure that the physician is safe, not just physically, but also in terms of, you know, not being abused or, or being discriminated against or even microaggressed by the situation. Yeah. Um, and you talk about sort of the safety of the clinician and just take it in a different context. Um, when do you think outside of medicine within um, your discussions, um, when do you think a conversation stops being productive? You know, it's a difficult question, as I'm sure you know, because it depends on the conversation. It depends on who's participating. It depends on what the point. Sometimes, you know, you really need to walk away from a conversation with a decision, you know, where, what direction the project or the policy or the, even in interpersonal reactions, interactions, I'm sorry, like, are we going to buy this thing or not? Sometimes you need a decision and sometimes it's more an exchange of ideas. I think this is more for my personal than professional life. When it's in the context of an exchange of ideas, there are sometimes, um, there is sometimes a point of reaching kind of fundamental disagreements. And I don't think that those are necessarily where conversations need to stop. But if it gets to the point where people are just feeling hurt or aggrieved by what's being discussed rather than participating in the conversation, I don't necessarily think minds need to be changed for it to be a productive conversation, but there does need to be an openness and a desire to be part of a discussion, a discourse. And when that's fallen away and there's just, um, you know, abrasiveness between the two sides, then I think that there's little to be gained. And often there's more to be gained by pausing and coming back to that conversation later. Yeah. So an unproductive conversation doesn't necessarily mean that both sides are, um, are disagreeing because it happens a lot nowadays. Um, it just means that both sides are disagreeing and it doesn't seem like there's a way forward in the conversation without this sort of aggressive, um, defensive nature. Yeah, or even, um, you know, uh, hurt or frustration on one part that's, that's not going to resolve through further discussion, yeah. Yeah, and, and your personal experience when you believe that a conversation is no longer productive, what do you do? How do you, um, how do you keep that relationship with that individual while recognizing, you know, this is not, this is not productive and this is not moving forward? Yeah. So this is obviously couched in the fact that I've only had the experience that I've had um, 
you know, and the more life experience you have, I think the better you are at these things. Um, but for me, I've found that both it's what comes naturally and it's what's been effective is just being very honest and not, and, you know, ending or curbing or maybe pausing the conversation by saying that this is the reason. The reason is because it feels like it's getting unproductive because feelings are getting hurt or it's getting unproductive because we're not coming to any sort of resolution. And it's just, you know, the, the um, friction is getting heightened um, and just being very honest about that being the reason that the conversation should maybe either stop or be put on pause rather than, you know, beating around the bush in terms of, of what it is. Yeah. Um, and then what do you think are the most important things for an individual to have at the forefront of their mind when engaging in a difficult conversation or when you engage in a hard conversation? What do you think that trainees, the tools that they should receive on this, um, perhaps that they don't receive or that aren't really prioritized? So again, it's really, you know, it's all different types of difficult conversations. I think in medicine, a lot of times we think about difficult conversations, um, like what we mean is delivering difficult news to a patient, you know, about their prognosis or about their um, condition. And then I think that there's a different version of difficult conversations, which is like when you need to, you know, from someone in a training position, receiving maybe difficult news about their performance. And then interpersonally, of course, there's a million different kinds of difficult conversations. I think the thing that applies kind of across all those things is um, being really mindful again of, of your perspective really being your own and being limited by you know your lived experience i say that um you know we can talk specifically about what applies to like delivering bad news which you know there has been actually like a good amount of research about that in terms of um useful ways to to kind of engage with the patient and um you know delivering the news in a way that is both uh less jarring and also um honest and doesn't you know create false hope but uh, doesn't create a complete loss of hope i think i'll focus more on kind of the the full like any typical conversation which again the primary things would be um being very mindful again of your own perspective uh and it not necessarily reflecting the perspective of other people involved in the conversation and uh, being very open to hearing how your intentions are maybe mismatched with what you're saying or the position that you're holding. Because I think a lot of times that is what causes the friction. If um, you know someone is coming from a good place and they're being told that what they're saying is limited or limiting of the other person um, and saying, well, like I have good intentions. There's no way that that's what I'm causing but being open to the fact that maybe you have implicit biases or, or you're just blinded to how your stance could be impacting somebody from a different background. Yeah. Trying to go in, you know, recognizing what you do know, but also more importantly, recognizing what you may not know and um, going in with an open mind as well. That's right. Ethics, I think sometimes gets overlooked when, doing the ethical thing is inconvenient, which it usually is. 
Um, and I guess my question is, how can, how do you ensure that ethics is at the forefront of, um, I know you don't work directly with physicians, but ethics is at the forefront of people's minds when, you know, they're making, uh, when they're having difficult conversations, when you're in a room full of doctors, perhaps, and um, you are trying to bring the ethics forward, then they're thinking about the medicine. A great question. And there's not necessarily one answer. I think making sure that ethics or an ethical or moral or humanistic perspective is a part of the process is important to introduce at every level. And what I mean is that it needs to be part of the medical school curriculum. It needs to be part of the residency training. It needs to be part of gradual um, training thereafter. And it needs to be advocated for continuously so that systems continuously improve to, to involve the ethics. Now that's a double-edged sword because there are curriculums that don't necessarily have a huge impact because there's, you know, they're like what's taught in the classroom, but then what is role modeled in the actual clinical care is just as important. And so the people doing the role modeling need to be, um, you know, effectively trained over and over again to, to consider ethics. The thing though, is that I, I do think we sometimes don't give enough credit. We think that, you know, people in any sort of profession, whether it's finance or law or medicine, you know, are just like, they only care to, you know, be technical about like, um, practicing based on the training they've had and they're not considering ethics, but I think the average person does, you know, the average physician is really mindful of the person they're providing care to. And it's not that they don't care about the quote unquote ethics as if ethics is something discreetly separate from the medicine, you know, these things are absolutely intertwined. Um, so I think we should give a little more credit for the fact that that is a part of the thought process and most discussions, but it does need to be continuously and iteratively refined with people from the outside advocating for where things could be more ethical, more equitable, more just, and then also a, a, a continual emphasis on making sure this is an explicit part. So it's not just, you know, something that is mentioned to you in your medical school curriculum, and then that's it, but rather is explicitly reintroduced at every level of training and practice. Yeah, that sort of made me think of another question. Um, do you think, uh, you know, you say that it would maybe surprise people that, you know, a lawyer or a doctor is not just focused on the medicine or the law and that ethics is sort of ingrained in, in what they do. And I was wondering whether or not you think that's a product of the education they receive in medical school or law school. Um, and if you know, it is sort of ingrained in that curriculum, or if it's more so, um, you know, everyone has life experiences, and you're sort of born with a sense of, I don't want to go into a conversation and argue with someone, um, and in a sense of right and wrong, and, and whether or not that's something, you know, sort of nature versus nurture. Are they taught this in, in an educational setting, or is this just sort of a product of their life experience? I think it's in part what they're taught, in part their life experience, but that cuts both ways. It's it's what lends to making ethics a part of their daily practice, but it also could be a limit 
So, you know, that's why curriculums need to be continuously improved. That's why um, people with perspectives outside their own life experience need to be continuously introduced to, to, con- to like continue to inch the needle in the direction of, of fairness and openness. And that's, it's a process, you know, and it's, um, it has to do with geographically where you train. It has to do with um, who trained you. It has to do with what your life experience is. It's just so many factors, but I think the idea needs to be to continuously move in the right direction. Yeah. Like, like you say, it's, it's a process and everyone I've talked to up to now really emphasizes that the only way you get better at this is by doing it. And that's, you know, you can talk about it all day long, but um, the only way to improve and to really gain that experience you need is to have these difficult conversations and to make the mistakes and then to move forward and just continue um, working and honing that skill. Yeah. Um, And then my last question, Um, you're about to walk into a room and you know you're going to be having a difficult discussion with colleagues. You know, you're talking about transplant ethics. Um, What do you tell yourself before you go into that room? Interesting. I don't know that it's always like a conscious, you know, like taking a step back, which maybe would be a good, (laughs) a good strategy. Um, But I think it's a lot of the stuff we've touched on, which is pushing yourself to go in with an open mind about what your own limitations are, even when you're very well researched and, you know, have had a lot of experience with the matter, just recognizing that at the end of the day, there are people who have had different experiences or more experiences or, are, you know, familiar with literature or systems that you have less uh, familiarity with. So being very open-minded about your own limitations and, um, and yeah, and being very, trying to remain very clear about the objectives being, you know, the ethically minded ones rather than any sort of, you know, being correct or being validated in your perspective. So really keeping eyes on the prize of like what's actually important and being open-minded to where you could learn from or or be bettered by other perspectives or other knowledge brought to the discussion 